And so without further ado, uh, tell us a little bit about, um, Gail, about you know, your background as maybe a, an average young Israeli that comes into cyber, um, how you came into the military, and what that's like. And then we'll also talk a little bit about the, sort of the history of the whole Israeli economy, how the high-tech boom started, what drives it forward now, uh, some of the special areas that, that cybersecurity fits in terms of supply and demand in the world's economy, and some of the implications for economics and for geostrategy. How's that? Okay, sounds okay. good. Can you hear me? Excellent. Well, first of all, thank you, David, and thank you all for, uh, for the invitation to this uh, important event. Um, and again, I'd like to thank David and his team for, you know, for believing, for them believing in us and investing in us uh, and helping with, uh, you know, us with all the, their connections. A um, little bit about me. Um, I'm 46 years old. Um, I'm second generation born in Israel. My parents were born in Israel, too. And I served in the Army in, uh, in the Unit A200. Um, I'm, well, I'm not really your typical uh, recruit there. But apparently, they, uh, they specialize in recruiting all those non-typical guys. Um, I guess because one of the, their aims is you know, thinking out of the box. And if you, if you just recruit the regular people, you always you know, keep thinking within the box. Um, so I have a varied background, as, as you mentioned. Um, I served uh, in the unit A200. Actually, my, my first uh, commander was uh, uh, Rami Afrati, who was supposed to be here. Um, I served under him. And later on, when he moved away, I still remained with the same place. Um, and then later on, I studied um, molecular genetics and cancer research. Uh, and again, as David mentioned, um, it's applying these out-of-box thinking skills that I had, well, a bit before, but it was they were really honed uh, in the Army and with the training, um, and applying them to different fields. And, but then I came back all the way. <laughs> um, you know, did some uh, software, some software development, security. Later on, it was called cyber. In the, in the last few years, I was, um, uh, I, I was consulting to the Israel Minister of Defense about protecting tactical systems and other special systems. And in the last year, um, we founded uh, Firmitas, which is the startup which and I work with. We are three founding partners, uh, and uh, one of them was supposed to be here. <laughs> um, so uh, where should we start? With, with the background. Let me start with the history of the Israeli economy a little bit. Okay. A little bit of background. The Israeli economy. The, How did the history of, uh, uh, sorry. How did they move from kibbutz to cybersecurity? In, well, in, in it's just not 60 years. Years. So I'll, I'll try to go briefly over the history of, uh, of the Israeli industry. Um, it starts from, well, the early uh, 1900s is, is the history where modern-day modern Israel started. Um, obviously, you know, people uh, came in, migrated, uh, made Aliyah, um, and they started uh, dealing with uh, agriculture. So the first industry, first local industry had to do with uh, pumps, with uh, pump lines, um, you know, with uh, water, pi water pipes, and even wooden crates for exporting um, uh, citrus fruit. I mean, it sounds very simple nowadays, but that's where it started. And then somewhere around the 30s, um, there was a large immigration from Europe. So the industry moved to construction and you know, uh, household stuff, um, electrical utilities, and, um, and, and clothes and you know, shoes. Um, and then came the Second World War. And the Second World War, obviously, there was no, uh, there was no import to Israel. 
um, well, because of the state of war. That means, well, good things for the industry. It just, um, it just pushed, pushed the industry forward. And next came in line the struggle for independence. There, again, the country had to work with um, very, very little. Uh, there was practically no support from any external sources. And there the industry took a turn and we started manufacturing weapons, munition, and even armored vehicles. So that's the start of the Israeli uh, military industries uh, and, uh, and IAI, IMI, which uh, you might know them today. And I'm gonna, every time he says an acronym, I'm going to tell it to you because oh, some of you don't know. <laughs> Israel Aircraft Industries, which is now a multi-billion dollar it's company. It's now Israeli Aerospace Industries uh, because they also do satellites and, and, and you know, even better. ICBMs. <laughs> and then IMI, as far as I know, is still Israel Military Industries. Right, correct. And they do rockets and which drones. Which is because there's also IWI, which is the Israeli Weapon Industries. You, you probably all have heard about uh, weapons like the, um, the Desert Eagle, the uh, Tavor, the, um, the Jericho gun. So everything is done in, uh, in, in IWI, which is a sister company of IMI. Um, sorry for that. <laughs> so that was the, the struggle for independence caused us to be more well, independent even in manufacturing capabilities. And when Israel was founded in, in 1948, um, it was a young country. But it was very unique because unlike many of the other countries, it grew at an amazing rate. Um, the population doubled almost every four years at the beginning. Um, so obviously, um, we needed more, uh, more, um, uh, say, yeah, more money, basically, <laughs> just as a growth engine for investment, the country. More investment, capital. So it's capital, yes, but not investment. Nobody wanted to invest in Israel. It was a young country, it was uh, almost on the brink of, uh, of destruction because enemies from, uh, from without tried to, uh, to do war almost all the time. So the only or the major way to get capital is exporting. So the, the local industry had to step up, um, improve um, the, uh, the variety of the stuff that it made and mainly the quality. Now to compete with well-known established companies in the world, mainly in Europe uh, back then. Um, so everything stepped up and there's been a, a significant improvement in quality and uh, and in and variety of stuff that we made. And the next stage, I, I'm sorry, but everything seems to revolve around uh, uh, conflict. <laughs> but that's the way it is. I mean, that was the trigger. Um, came 67, the Six Day War. Um, there was a large embargo in Israel. Uh, no country wanted to, to sell us, uh, to sell Israel any weapons um, and other industrial stuff. So again, we had to do it ourselves. Um, that's to really turn, uh, turn toward um, increasing uh, investment in infrastructure and in the weapon industries. You had something else? I was just going to add, there's, there's a famous story about um, Israel had bought <clears throat> patrol boats for the Navy from France. <clears throat> and these patrol boats were sitting in the harbor at, I don't know where, Cherbourg or somewhere. Yeah, Cherbourg. Or Marseille, yeah. Cherbourg. And um, when the war happened, uh, France, no offense to France, and many other European countries suddenly switched from being pro-Israel prior to this 67 war to saying, wait a minute, if we, excuse my language, piss off the Arabs, we're going to have a lot of trouble with the Middle East oil, et cetera, et cetera. And so they kind of switched very fast. And the policy switched so much so that they said, you can't even have those boats that you paid for and that are ready for delivery. And so what did Israel do? Well, so it's uh, one day, actually, it's one midnight. 
we stole, we stole the boats, our boats actually. <laughs> uh, we freed them. <laughs> or what was it? Patriated them. <laughs> yes. Liberated the Liberated boats them. from their heart. So, um, yeah, we stole them and, and uh, cruised uh, all the way back to Israel, and it was very significant uh, for, for that war. Um, about around that time, we also liberated some, uh, some plans for the uh, Mirage airplane. From uh, Back then, it was called uh, Dassault, Dassault Systems, um, the French uh, aerospace industry. And um, because Israel bought these planes, and uh, it managed to get hold on, on, of, the, of the plans also. And you, I don't know how many of you have heard about the, uh, the airplane uh, Kfir. So it was built on top of these plans. So Israel, as a very young country, already had its own first, uh, own built plane. So it was very, very similar to the, to the Mirage, the French Mirage plane, but it was still ours, and proudly so. It was slightly changed, improved, certainly improved. <laughs> Um, and, so, and yes, and this too also was a basis, a very good basis for the, for the IAI, the Israeli Aerospace Industries. So initially it was called Israeli uh, Aircraft Industries, but once they, step, once they stepped up and, and started um, sending satellites, they became the Aerospace Industries. And um, the next turn of event was again 1973, the uh, Yom Kippur War. And um, the country, uh, the country and the uh, establishment understood that what we need as a country is we need better intelligence, we need continuous intelligence, we need to look further, um, to be more alert, and that prompted a lot of investment into intelligence uh, technology. And a lot of this technology, well, I think all of it, is the basis of what we have today. And some of the stuff we can't even tell about uh, until this day, even though it's it was invented back in, in the 70s, um, still. Some of it has to remain secret. But from that, we started the whole new industry. So that was 73, and then came uh, 19, uh, uh, during the 1980s, um, Israeli companies uh, doing with communication. So the Israeli hyper, uh, uh, sorry, the high-tech industry is very strong in communication. Part of it is because we had to monitor our enemy's communication, so we had to develop all this expertise. Um, in the 1990s, it was the, um, the big immigration wave from, uh, from the Soviet Union. And it was a, it was a huge opportunity. A lot of uh, highly educated people, engineers, technicians came, and actually this was the growth engine for the, for the high-tech. Without them, we wouldn't have the high-tech that we have today. So we had, so it was actually a conversion of things um, you know, things change in technology, it was opportunity, and then came all these excellent people and helped us turn this opportunity into something that we can work with. So we had a lot of success, uh, sort of success stories um, in the industry um, with, with the help of this uh, excellent immigration. And well, from then on, it was just, you know, 2000s and whatever. Um, I can mention a few of the companies so around the 1980s uh, not all of the companies are here with us today, but uh, so the larger companies would be uh, ECI, uh, which dealt with uh, communications. I don't know yeah. if, uh, if you heard of them. Um, they were very good in uh, ADSL technology. Nowadays, it's considered very old. Um, Converse, which sadly was recently sold to uh, an Indian company. Uh, I think it was Tech Mahindra. Um, and um, 
let's see, uh, and of course, uh, Tadiran, which uh, did an ex excellent communication system. Some of them started from, uh, from uh, encrypted uh, communication for the army, but obviously they went off to the civilian market and did an excellent job. In the 1990s, um, I think the best, the, the best company that, you know, worth mentioning is Checkpoint. Probably all of you have heard about the Checkpoint, the guys who invented firewall. The first out there was this excellent solution. Nowadays, we know it's not enough. I'll get into this later, but uh, back then, it was amazing technology. It still is. I mean, nobody would ever try, you know, getting a network without a firewall nowadays, but still. So uh, this is an example, by the way, of how um, not necessarily technologies, but uh, problems encountered during the uh, service in the army, together with experience and the civilian market with engineers, can converge together to produce a solution which can help the whole world, not just Israel. So it was encountered in a specific place, but they understood that this can also be beneficial to the whole of the world. And in the uh, 2000s, um, <coughs> it's worth mentioning uh, companies like um, CyberArk, which did an IPO recently of over $1 billion. Um, another company founded about that time was uh, Forescout. Probably not many of you have heard about it. I think uh, they haven't gone to IPO, but they raised recently. It's, it's what you call unicorns um, of a value of uh, almost $1 billion. Um, both of them are dealing with uh, cybersecurity. So more and more companies in nowadays in Israel are dealing with security and different aspects of cybersecurity. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll fill in a couple okay. points because he's speaking quickly and some of you have some of the background but, but not others. One, just to show how interrelated the issues of economics and science and the security of a national entity like Israel can be. Um, after that 67-73 debacle, both of those debacles, I mean Israel 67 was a great victory but nobody likes to have a war. But this diplomatic change of, of the uh, former military suppliers being going boycott. And remember this, this is not just France or European countries. The US had a boycott on weapons to Israel for many years, for decades, right? I forget when it ended exactly, but... Uh, I don't know, uh, 70s, somewhere around the 70s. Nixon ended the boycott. Um, yeah. But there had been from 48, um, Israel just had taken sort of a neutral policy there and had not been willing to um, send military equipment to the industry. So they really had to do a lot of this themselves. But the 73 war was particularly bad because it was an intelligence failure, and they felt that they had to really um, bone up and, and strengthen the infrastructure. And so there was a massive push um, for cybersecurity and to understand, again, listening posts beyond the borders, to understand what the enemy was thinking, what they were doing, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that was part of it. And then there's the economy part. And then something that we, did, we went over too fast, but this was a, there was a huge crash in the Israeli economy in the late 80s. late 80s. All of the major banks in Israel were nationalized because they all collapsed. Can you imagine? I mean, we had a crash in 08, which a lot of people thought was pretty bad. But only Bear Stearns and Lehman collapsed. All the big banks collapsed. I in think Israel. by that time we had an uh, inflation rate of over 100%. Way over, 400, yeah, I think four, yeah, four or 500% or yeah. even more than that Maybe per more. year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, things changed by the month. The economy was a real basket case. And the military went to the government and said, listen, if we don't have a strong economy, A, we can't pay for weapons from abroad, let alone build them internally. We need to have a strong economy to survive. It's not just, you know, bu bullet, the best bullets. We need uh, the infrastructure of the basic economy to go work as well. 
So there was a great bipartisan reform. I think it was Modai from the right and Paris from the left got together. Yeah. Did a lot of reforms, cut tariffs, allowed import of goods. But you would say, well, how does that help the economy? Because it forced competition. And competition is generally a good thing for the economy. First of all, it lowered prices for the Israelis. It brought in a more diverse set of suppliers, more choice. Remember the old toilet paper in Israel was like sandpaper? And now you get all kinds <laughs> of toilet paper. Well, it, it was very difficult for the industry at first. Uh, they had to trim down and, and become significantly more efficient. But it turned out that when the 90s, the, the, wave of, the large wave of immigration from the, from the, uh, from the uh, Soviet Union, or the ex-Soviet Union by then, um, came in the 90s, they came to a very efficient economy which allowed it to be a growth engine instead Correct. of a, a weight, a dead weight. Speaking of growth, the Israeli economy has grown enormously over the last, say, 30, 40 years. In 1960, the size of the economy was about, I think, $2 billion GDP. Something and today like it's something like over $320 billion. So it's enormous growth. Yeah. It's far outpaced the U.S. and Europe uh, in this time. And the average GDP in Israel is now close to uh, approaching um, Britain. Maybe it's past Britain. I think Britain. we passed the we passed U.K. Um, it's past Spain. It is Italy. It's not a poor country. Right? It hasn't passed France. I think France is very close to France. Somewhere, I think, between UK and France. Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit about the general economy. A couple stories about this um, 8,200 unit and what the kind of people are that get into it. The way I describe it is basically, you know, Israel has a draft, men and women, right? And so during high school, people go around from the military, and I know some of the recruiters, and they look for the best and brightest, especially in the STEM areas. Um, some also linguists, they look for those too, but basically they're recruiting for two kinds of things. People who know math and can do algorithms and code, and people who can listen to conversations in Arabic and Persian and Russian and other languages and, and, and get the information that they need. So a couple of my friends have been recruited for these units, and they're taken out specially. They give very special, excellent training. Um, they sometimes can do university and military uh, at in, the in same time. Courses, yes. In certain small groups of them. Uh, and, but the way I like to describe it is, you know, you say, hey, Joey, you know electronics, Jill, you know math, and Frida, you know physics. The three of you work on a project together. Build some new kind of radar system. And this is a project. And your grandmother's life depends on it. And people take this seriously. And they see during their time in, their, in, in the military that some of their friends, frankly, on the, on the infantry fronts, die. There are people that actually in their peer group that die. And so they see this is life and death. And they're on the cyber side. They're not shooting guns, but they're doing the same kind of work that defends the country and the nation and, and their grandmothers, literally. So it's a very serious time of life. You're 18 to 21. Most of us are getting drunk and screwing around at university. They're doing this kind of serious work. So now what comes out of that? It's like, I think, as a venture capitalist, I see it as steel tempered by an, a, a furnace, right? They come out and they are ready tested. They've built product, they've delivered on time, they've managed a budget, they've had responsibility, and they're ready to generally want to become entrepreneurs. So you've seen a dramatic change, and I think this is true. I'd like to add to that because, because people at, at a very young age, you know, nowadays <laughs> I can say that they're kids, um, I was there too, um, they get such huge responsibility in the private market, these guys would usually get the same kind of responsibility and then project sizes and importance only in another 20 or 30 years. But, so they get this. Another very interesting thing, and it also happened to me, is uh, these kids are too young to know. 
too young to know that they can fail or that they should fail in some cases. And they do what other things, uh, you know, other people think they're impossible. Um, you know, I was involved in, in a project. We did some stuff with artificial intelligence, or so can say more than that. But um, we had this external consultant that it was, I think, by then was number one in the world in, in, in neural networks and artificial intelligence. So we came up to this guy and wanted to consult with him how to do uh, this or that. And he said, no, you should drop it. It will never work. And we said, no, you didn't understand. It works. We just want to know how to make it better. We just <laughs> didn't know that it shouldn't be able to work. So it, we did it. Um, so that's the point. I mean, a lot of people are doing things which are considered impossible by the, uh, by the, uh, you know, by the, the standard uh, way of thinking. They don't know better. So they do it. And then um, there's also great leadership. And one, another one of my friends was, um, after his military, he served as a kind of the an interpreter, but the liaison between NGOs in Gaza and the Israeli military. A difficult negotiating job. Uh, and then after that, he was seconded to Shimon Peres' office as president of Israel. And uh, he has a few of these kind of, sort of like interns every year. And he put this guy in, Jonathan, and he said, okay, read this book. And it was Singularity by Ray Kurzweil. And he said, the author is the smartest Jew in the world. This is Peres talking. And he says, you read this book, and then I want you to go to Singularity University, it was the first year they had it, and I want you to study nanosatellites because that's important for Israel's future, and I want you to learn all about nanosatellites. So that kind of leadership from the top, you get it from the bottom and you get it from the top, this vision toward the future, yeah? And so maybe now talk a little bit about cyber, and let's go deep into okay, cyber, cyber, and well, <laughs> set out the problem, you know, how big is the problem, why don't we hear about it, give us some examples of things that might scare the living daylights if we knew they were really happening. Okay, I, first and of some all, of the solutions, how do we do it? <laughs> okay, we'll start first of all by an apology. Um, if what I'm saying here is going to cause you to lose sleep, I'm sorry about it. <laughs> but that's a world out there. Um, you know, people are talking a lot about cyber, um, but basically what it is, is things are being attacked. But, you know, in the old war, um, nowadays called kinetic war, um, things seemed to be more simple. Um, there was a balance of power in order to create a lot of damage. Only you needed a lot to invest a lot of money. You needed to be a large country, which also meant that you had infrastructure. You were more responsible. So yes, uh, we had this uh, Cold War, and, and we're sometimes people think we're on the brink of destruction of the whole world. Um, but the problem is nowadays is that everything is being connected. Everything has a computer in it. We have smart watch, smart refrigerator, but it's also um, think about um, you know electricity grid, um, traffic control, water and sewage, um, all of this. Hospitals. Everything is being yeah. Sadly, also hospitals. I mean, all the way down to or up to um, uh, surgery rooms. Everything is being computerized and everything is being connected. So a guy in whatever country you know we can say Russia or China, but you know without saying any names. Um, can I just pause for one second? Sure. Just again, because of an age range and different <laughs> levels of technology knowledge. Most of you know about the internet, of course. This is you know, a network of communications that goes computer to computer. But there's something else, which is a specialty area for, for both uh, Rami and uh, Gil, which is the internet of things. Now, in the internet of things, there are, what, seven, five, seven billion people on Earth. I think there are, what, three billion people with cell phones. And there are, what, about five or six billion internet accounts, of, um, so something, users, like something like that. Take, yep. But there are hundreds of billions of potential connected nodes. Your automobile has 
what, hundreds, thousands? Well, a new automobile has, uh, uh, you know, somewhere between 100 and 200 computerized units in it. Uh, you know, one thing I saw very funny, um, I saw this slide, it shows a picture of cows and it says, on, on the internet, nobody knows you're a cow. Because apparently, even in the US, uh, you have these smart pills, actually they're very large because they're for cows, Correct. and they let, the cow, the, uh, um, they let the cow swallow them and it monitors the health of the cows from within and it reports it over Wi-Fi. So a cow has an IP address. I mean, it's funny, but it means that there are more cows with IP addresses than, than humans in the US. So that's the Internet of Things. It doesn't mean that it has to be connected to the Internet. <coughs> Sorry. Um, but it means that things are being computerized and they start talking to each other, not necessarily through humans. Um, and, and the thing is that everything that has a computer in it can be attacked. Um, there's been references to this by, uh, by the Pentagon uh, uh, Chief of Information or, or Chief of Security. Um, <clears throat> and they're very worried about it. Actually, everybody's worried about it, and everybody should be worried about, about it. Because everything is being computerized, everything can be and is being attacked. And by cyber, basically, what they're meaning is the, the, the sort of like virtual world, or everything that is connected, the thing that we don't see, the information that is flowing around us. And while we don't see it, others can see it, you know, having computers and, and other equipment. And the problem is they can affect it sometimes adversely. Now, if it's being affected in a good way, that means it's helping us, everything is great. That's what it's meant to do. I mean, technology is there to help us, to make our life easier, better. But it can be tampered with. And this is the cyber attack that we're talking about. Um, so, the main problem that I mentioned, in kinetic war, you had this balance of, of, uh, of power, you had, uh, you had to have a lot of resources in order to create something, to create you know, a large effect. The problem with cyber is that with very, very little resource, um, and you can be as remote as you want from your uh, opponent, you can create huge damages. Um, anybody of you have seen recently a movie called uh, Black Hat? Movie Black Hat? Not. You have to do the plot summary because people didn't see it. Okay, well first of all, it's not that good a movie. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but the thing is, uh, the movie, so you don't mind about the spoiler, right? <laughs> the movie starts off with a, um, a nuclear reactor meltdown in China, of all places. So you see this being attacked somehow and, you know, using cyber, and, and there's a meltdown. And nobody can figure out why China. I mean, you know, if it would be in the US, you'd, you'd suspect Chinese or the Russians. But why China? You wouldn't suspect the US. So who can attack China and who dares attack China? Um, you know, everybody's afraid of the Chinese. And as the movie goes on, it turns out that there's another attack and, and the, 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 the hero of the movie tries to figure out, he's a hacker, obviously, um, he's trying to figure out what is the common denominator between these things, and it turns out that um, it's just a very small controller. It's a small chip, you don't see it even on your computers because it's a very small and relatively stupid chip, but it controls certain industrial control systems or industrial uh, systems such as uh, Specifically, in this case, it was a water pump. Because in, in the nuclear reactor, you have this water pump to, you know, to pump up the water, the, the, hot, the hot water, and then move it around. Um, and the, the, the end thing, the target of the movie was actually the, the guy was targeting, uh, I think it was uh, uh, tin mining companies out in Indonesia. It was the largest. And they wanted to flood the whole thing because he, right. bought, uh, he bought, I think it was uh, 
He, bu he was buying on the spot market yeah, was tin, spot he market. bought options, yeah. and then he wanted to make the price of tin go up. And so it sounds very convoluted, but it's real. Everything I can tell you from a technical point of view, everything in this movie, not can be done, but has been done before. That's the scary part. So it can happen. And it only takes one crazy person, and it, this guy doesn't need a lot of resources to pull this off. Um, another scary movie, you know, it's not a movie, but it's a book that I, uh, I read recently. It's called, I think, Lethal Code. Uh, by Lethal, uh, Lethal, Lethal Code. Code. Um, I think the author is um, Thomas, Thomas, Thomas Waite. Thomas Waite. Waite okay. uh, with an E at the end. Okay. So W-A-I-T-E. Um, and it discusses what has been discussed uh, in the media. It's called the um, Cyber Pearl Harbor. And there is this terrorist attack on the US, and nobody actually knows who it is uh, for, mo for most of the book. Um, and they crashed down the entire infrastructure of the United States. And I think it was the first time that Congress declared a war, but they didn't say on who, because they couldn't figure out who did it. <laughs> so there was a war, but it wasn't clear on who. Um, and it's very difficult, obviously, to run a country, and, and the consequences are even worse than a nuclear bomb, because the whole country was affected. Um, and they crashed down the whole infrastructure. Explain, go into some detail, because I okay, don't so know if What I mean understand. by crashing the infrastructure, um, you know, imagine um, you know, countrywide blackouts, and for long, long, long stretches of time, I mean days, um, adversely affecting um, traffic control meaning causing trains to crash, ships to go, to, uh, to go on shore, um, airplanes to, to fall from the sky, um, you know, water pumps, uh, they, they, uh, they mix them with uh, wastewater, you know, drinking water with wastewater, yes, you can do that. And, and by the way, um, there has been documented cases, in, even in the US, of, of cyber attack doing exactly that. It was just very small, you know, small scale, but it can be scaled up. So, um, did you hear that? There have been documented attacks where they've been able to con control a wastewater treatment plant and mix wastewater with fresh water. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it can happen, apparently. Um, and, and as for taking over uh, electricity grid, that too has happened. Well, not in a, in a nation scale, but recently, I think uh, a month ago or something like that, um, the US government, I forgot which branch, but uh, they mentioned that uh, Iranian hackers managed to penetrate and take control of, um, of sorry? A floodgate yes. 20, 20 miles out of New York City. Uh, it was back in 2013, and I think there was another incident somewhere in California, uh, almost in two, also in 2013, also attributed to Iranian hackers. They managed to get control of some electricity grid uh, controllers. Um, well, obviously, now that they reported, I guess it's under control, or they think it's under control. So it has been done, it can be done, and if it can and has been done, it will be done. Recently, That's Ukraine? Uh, okay, yeah. All of you probably heard about the, the war between Russia and the Ukraine, um, you know, about land, as always. Um, but one of the recent turn of events is uh, supposedly the uh, Russians, or Russian-backed hackers, uh, I'm saying supposedly because nobody can prove it yet, um, they have attacked the Ukrainian power grid and caused uh, significant uh, area blackouts for days. Um, and it has, and they're used, well, they used just what we call cyber weapons. So they didn't drop any bomb, they didn't uh, crash anything. 
they just sent what you all know probably as viruses or worms to take over the, uh, the, the controllers and crash them down in specific cases, in specific areas, which caused uh, spikes and at the end blackouts. Um, so yes, th this is a case, and it's not the first documented case of a cyber war. Well, obviously you all heard about the Stuxnet, right? Um, it's uh, it's people being didn't hear about now. if people didn't hear about Stuxnet, maybe just a little bit of background on what it okay. was. Okay, uh, Stuxnet nowadays called the first modern uh, or the uh, the first uh, ever uh, cyber weapon. Uh, it's been attributed to the uh, to a cooperation between the Israelis and the Americans. Um, Although I believe that the Chinese were guilty, but I can't prove it. Um, anyway, this is a, a piece of code, you can call it a virus, that was very, very specific and it targeted the Iranian um, nuclear research center, specifically their plan to enrich uranium. Um, and you enrich uranium only for one purpose, to build a nuclear bomb. You don't need uh, enrich uranium to, uh, to uh, you know, manufacture electricity. Um, so this was the target, and it was a very, very smart attack. Um, this worm, it had sort of uh, intelligence of its own. It just propagated between computers, and there was a, a huge challenge, huge technical challenge. Oh, well, first of all, because the Iranian nuclear enrichment plant was buried something like uh, a mile underground in the hills in, uh, in Iran, obviously very inaccessible place, uh, the networks were supposed to be completely separate from the outside world. Well, I'm saying supposedly because obviously they weren't. <laughs> uh, the Stuxnet managed to get in. Um, and it, uh, this attack was, was very, very sophisticated. It was very sublime. Um, it took a lot of stages. Um, it seems like it took a lot of planning and research, um, but it seems to work. So what do I mean by a very smart attack? I mean, if, if this attack was just would cause the, um, the process to stop immediately, then obviously it would be detected immediately and can be stopped and everything should, could be cleaned. The thing is that it created this sort of problems within the, the process that could be attributed to technical malfunction. They look like technical malfunction, um, you know, increased, uh, um, yeah, what do you call it? Uh, I think it was, they, they changed, varied. They varied the motor speed. Right, so it caused right. mechanical damage. So I don't know if you had heard that done. because you didn't have a mic, but it varied the spin rate of the centrifuges, right? And so it was not getting the proper output, and it was damaging the machines without them knowing it. That's it, one thing, but the other part of the attack was when they, uh, they blocked the report back to the, to the control systems, and they said that everything was okay. <laughs> so everything looked okay, but behaved in a damaging way. And uh, they had a lot of other stages there, but everything was very, very well designed. And uh, I, I, I heard how they got into this. Uh, the, one of the interesting, how got, they got into this facility. So I think this, uh, now it's, it's um, I wouldn't say common knowledge, but everybody thinks they know how it's being done. Uh, they targeted very specific engineers that they knew who worked there. Uh, they knew what uh, websites they used to go. So they poisoned this website and they, they, they infected this uh, engineer's uh, home machine, the home computer, and it just, you know, he used a memory stick. By the way, a memory stick, just for those of you who don't know, this is an Israeli invention. Um, 
It wasn't designed for that, but <laughs> it's good to know. Sorry? Yes. Yes, correct. Sorry, what was that? It is, yes. but actually it was, uh, it was done by M Systems. M, M Systems were the one uh, holding the, uh, uh, by the way, our company is sitting right uh, where they would had their first office. <laughs> um, so it's Dovron, and, uh, and yes, uh, it's, uh, the thing is that a lot of companies, a lot of knowledge is transferred from Israel to the US back and forth. So by the way, you know, cooperation is very good. <laughs> um, so anyway, that this uh, infected the, uh, the, uh, the, the flash memory, the, the memory stick, and he brought it into work, and probably just put it in there to check things. Um, and it got infected. And so, so that's, well, that's, uh, that's the main part. Um, so it was very, it was, it was over a long time. It caused a lot of damage, a lot of delays in the program uh, without being exposed. It was being exposed because evidently the program went to its second stage, uh, which was um, less stealthy. And nobody can say why it was less stealthy, but it, it seems like it was designed probably to show that we can get in there. Sorry, not we, the Chinese. Uh, the, the, anyone, the Chinese can get in there and, and, and in fact, so actually turn it not just into a technical cyber weapon, but also have the psychological aspects of it. Um, you know, to put some, some scaring into them. <laughs> See that we can get anywhere. Sorry, not we, again, not we. <laughs> I don't know this for sure. Um, so, you know. I want to talk that, maybe a little bit now about sort of the maybe classes of attacks. You know, there's social engineering, there's viruses, there's, I don't know, different sort of. Well, there are different approaches. Um, usually attacks are combining. So people are always talking about social, social engineering. Social engineering has nothing to do with technology, everything to do with people. How people think, how to make them do things which they're not supposed to do. Um, you know, j j just uh, as an example, I think there was a, a survey about passwords. Um, and apparently, um, a significant percentage of employees in, in, in large companies are willing to give away their password uh, for a sneakers bar. That would be a social engineering attack. I mean, I wouldn't break the, the encryption. I just need the, the password. And I can get the password, you know, with, uh, with candy bar. Social engineering. Uh, but that's but simple. Let me, let me do a demonstration of a, of a more, more logical one. I call you up. Gil, it's uh, David calling from tech support at Hewlett Packard. We, you work at Hewlett Packard. Um, uh, there's some trouble on your network segment. Uh, can you give me your password? I need to get in for a moment. Sure, that would probably be one of the most common ones and even the most, uh, one of the most successful ones. Um, you'd get this, by the way, or you know, uh, people might call you from your uh, credit card uh, company saying, we're from, I, I got this call once. You know, I'm, I'm from Visa Security. Um, I'd like to know your, um, your ID number. Uh, the four last digits of the card said, wait, 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 <laughs> I'm not going to give you this. Give me no, your, your number, I'll call you. That's what you should do. But a lot of people fall for this. I mean, because the guy sounds, you know, very authoritative. Uh, he's calling, obviously, from, from uh, you know, from the network, from the IT, so he must be this guy. And if he wants the password, I'll give it to him. Why not? I mean, he knows it already. So, so yes, that's how people fall for it. Um, that would be probably the most common type of, of, uh, of social engineering attack. Mm -hmm. um, convince people that uh, you should hand them over your information. 
Um, again, it's not, it has nothing to do with technology, it has everything to do with people, but it is usually one of the first stages of attacking organizations to gather credentials, to gather um, identities. Um, the second stage is infiltrating in there and using these identities and credentials. I was going to say a couple of things that are interesting. There's something called advanced persistent threats, which are one of the big type of attacks. Um, sometimes they're known as zero-day attacks, right? They're related, but okay. different. But the advanced persistent threats um, are ones that endure quite a long time. And in, in any major network in American corporation, or sometimes in government or foreign companies, when the attackers are in, they're in for months at a time. They often endure for 250 days. Right? That's the average. Average, thank you. Average the is average 250 days. Average of being detected or, yeah, for being in the network is yeah, over 200 days. 250 days. So they're in your network. So now what does that mean? Well, that means partly that the defenses that we built years ago, and I was one of the early guys at Checkpoint Software, were firewalls and intrusion prevention systems. And there were a number of antivirus uh, malware protections. This is all you know, for endpoint security, try and secure the perimeter. That doesn't really work very much anymore, partly because the perimeters have become so porous. Bring your own device policies at, at work. Um, and memory sticks that you can bring in and out of the office. Right. In the old days, floppy disks and CD-ROMs that you'd bring in out. All this stuff makes it extremely hard for the beleaguered security team or the IT department to secure the perimeter. So a new level of security is behavioral analysis. And we're seeing a number of Israeli companies. The, the RSA show has been going on uh, through today uh, down at Moscone, and there were probably what? 500 companies exhibiting, I don't know, something. Yeah, something like And probably, what, companies. 50 of them were Israeli, maybe? More. More than 50. More I mean, than 50. It's, huge percentage of this industry is, is Israeli-dominated or, or um, I think, uh, supply. I think, this uh, funny story. Yeah. Please. Um, I, I, you know, I said to David that uh, the, the most heard language there was Hebrew, and he tried to correct me English. I said, no, no, uh, the, the local people, you know, and the Americans are more quiet. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, me and two of my friends were walking down the street, one of the uh, streets between meetings, and we had this discussion in Hebrew. Um, I, don't know, I think it was about smartwatches and uh, what to do with them. And walking by, this guy there says, uh, let me intervene. I have an opinion. Obviously, he did that in Hebrew. <laughs> Why not? And he just joined the conversation. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> like... Okay, and by the way, we found out that uh, obviously we don't know him, but we knew his boss because uh, we knew the company, and we uh, we just been to a meeting with him uh, the other day with the company. <laughs> uh, Interesting so little a, cultural. Some people talk about why uh, different cultures have uh, technical breakthroughs or, or domain expertise. One of the interesting areas in Israel is that psychologists report about shyness around the world. And certain countries are very shy. Taiwan people, Japanese people, very shy. In Israel. Shyness is not even known <laughs> as a condition in the psychological literature. It's an unknown thing. Israelis are not shy. Yeah, <laughs> you can It's good. That. Helps yeah. you be entrepreneurs. Right. Okay, so you're mentioning hospitals, and actually there have been two recently two types of attacks, two reported attacks. Uh, one is not an attack. It's a security researcher uh, who managed to remotely control uh, an infusion pump, the, the, the pump that uh, you know, pumps uh, drugs and, and, um, into patients. And remotely, well, obviously without being connected to, <laughs> to a patient, uh, he managed to uh, change the type of medicine, change the amount of medicine it dispenses, 
um, without it being recorded. And we reported it back to, um, to the FDA, who was very shocked. And I think it was the first time ever that the FDA not just recommended, but mandated that hospitals and, uh, stop using this specific pump. By the way, it was a Hospira infusion pump. Then they have actually a, a number on it. Um, so I think it was the first ever. Usually they just recommend do this or do that, but in this case, they mandated, they, they demanded that they, it, it's being stopped used, stopped being used. And, but wouldn't um, you say that that's a really ineffective solution? Because it's not just that pump, it's not okay, just so that manufacturer that's at risk. Also, a funny story. Why has this pump been researched? Do you know why? A competitor? Well, I thought so too. <laughs> I still do. No, actually, the researcher, uh, it was interviewed in one of the, uh, I think it was in Wired magazine or something, and he said the most obvious thing. It was the cheapest one he could get on eBay. <laughs> so he knew he had to do some research on, on a medical device, and the, well, what, what do you do? You go on eBay, buy one, it was the cheapest one. But he promised that he will do so for other more expensive infusion pumps. And you know what I can tell you? I'm certain that he'll be very successful in penetrating, you know, in taking over these two. They're built practically the same. The only reason that he succeeded with the first one is just it was cheap to buy. That's and this, this highlights something. Rabbi asked about a slightly different issue. I'm going to explain three things. One is motivations of the attackers. What are they? The first motivation historically was pride. Generally, it was youthful pride. I can do this. And all that was back in the beginning. 15-year-old yes. guys that were hacking into telephone systems to get free minutes and so on and so forth. And then it was to do, this one sounds like he was motivated by pride. He wanted to um, Well, do he's it a cheaply. security researcher. He wanted to get more Oh, jobs. he was a yeah. security researcher. Rabbi asked about something different, where hospitals are being forced to pay off extortion money to protect the privacy of clients. You know, if you're a hospital, for, let's just take an example, in Beverly Hills, and you have Beyonce and, you know, Brad Pitt getting operated on, whatever, whatever, those records are very, very confidential for that hospital. They don't want to let that out because it embarrasses the patients and so on and so forth. So... This type of DAC, which is different, it's, it's called, uh, it's, uh, well, specifically, it's called uh, cryptoware. Um, it's, it's a very nasty piece of malware. You know, I, I really hate this one specifically. <laughs> it touches on a very sensitive, um, you know, soft side, the feelings. Um, it can happen to any of you. It can, in fact, uh, mobile phones, iPhones, Android phones, and also your home computer. So it's basically a type of virus. It enters your device, encrypts all your important stuff, not the operating system, but your, your files, specifically pictures and movies that you've taken. Imagine now, I mean, all our pictures now are digital. Our entire memories are digital and everything is being encrypted and you have just one option. So it's encrypted, nobody can decrypt it without a special key and you have to pay for it. By the way, using a, you know, it's called a crypto coin, it's, it's Bitcoin. Probably all of you have heard of Bitcoin. The main thing about Bitcoin is it's untraceable. So you have to pay someone. You don't know who gets the money. Uh, it can reach terrorist organization, um, but it mainly reaches criminals, regardless of, of their you know. So intentions. I just want to make sure, I think some people are staring like, what? So what's happening here is they infect your computer, they encrypt all of the information that you hold near and dear. Important information. Important. And then they That's say to you, scary. pay us or else. You'll now, never get it back. Right. So by paying, they're not requiring, they're not requesting a huge amount of money. I think it's in the order of between $50 to $100. That's the amount of money. And each of you would, not gladly, but would pay so 
to release all your pictures, you know, of, your, of yourselves, of your kids, your grandkids. What would you do without them? Um, so all your memories, all our memories, me, mine too, are digital nowadays, and everything is being encrypted. So it's, uh, this is why it's so scary. And, but of course, the problem is... <laughs> but for is, business, it's even worse. But the problem is, they can then get you the next month, and the next month. There's no guarantee that paying this extortion will then solve the problem. Right? Well, and with big organizations, until it's much, now, much bigger. Until now, every time they got paid, they released these files. But yes, what happens in the next time, in the next month? Um, Okay, because you, you sort of backed it up offline, which is excellent. It, it's one of the, well, it's, it's not a defense, but it's a way to handle this. So this is one type of, uh, so what you mentioned is about the intention behind the attacks. Who does that? And the problem is that nowadays it's not just terrorist organizations. It's, it's becoming, it's, well, it's not organized crime, but it's, it is crime. And once it's crime, it's, it's, the thing is, it's, for them, it's worth it. They invest very, very little money. They get lots of money off of it. So not, even if not all the people pay, if they infected you know, 10 million people, which is not a lot of them, um, even 10% you know, of them pay off $50 per person, do the math yourself. So there's, there's several motivations. One, there's the, the bride, then there's money, then there's terrorism, ideology, and then there's state okay, national so, interest. So I can expand on that. Questions? Uh, Perfect. So uh, I can expand it. Pride no longer plays a role in, in real hacking. I mean, it starts off this way, but usually they go you know, one of either ways. They can go white hat, meaning work for the good guys, or black hat, work for the bad guys. When they work off for the bad guys, they write the tools, they sell them for nothing. You can buy, you can have your own, you know, your own uh, crypto virus. You can buy a kit for about $5,000 off the internet, if you know where, I won't tell you. Um, have your own virus, release it into the wild, and collect the money. And so, so these so-called smart guys are getting paid for creating the weapons, um, but they let you use them, or anyone else use them, for that matter. Right. Um, so that's a, that's a problem. I mean, anyone with a little money, they don't, nowadays, terrorists and criminals, they don't need to have um, a technical understanding, very, very minimal technical understanding, to mount an attack. A devastating attack. Now let's go okay. to questions. And we have the young lady uh, in the dark suit, and then we'll just move right across. I think Jordan is after that. Sure. So to follow up on what you were just saying, that they don't need much technical background to create these viruses, what languages are the viruses written in, or are they parts of them essentially pre-written that you're just having assembled modules? They're all of them pre-written. So when you buy this sort of kit, you mix and mix, sorry, mix and match. Um, different parts that are been pre-written, so it's sort of like Lego blocks, but you don't see that. You just, you just say, I want it to be called this way, do this and that, and you're in charge of releasing that and collecting the money. In some cases, they'd even take percentage off of it. Um, but you really, really don't know, need to understand anything about writing computer programs. Do the, if I may, do it's the, easier, go, than, it's easier than operating an email. Do the white don't, hats need to understand anything about computer programming or is yes. that okay. <laughs> sadly yes <laughs> just, i'm going to just expand one sec we'll get to everybody one interesting way of that this it's the between the white and the black it, it's very mixed here's why great researchers very ethical solid uh, academic people at berkeley at stanford and mit are working all the time trying to figure out flaws in big systems 
Microsoft OS system, the Android system, etc. Once in a while, every year they find two or three, right? Big oh, much more systems. than that. More than that? Well, but big ones. Per month, per day. Big, 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 big flaws? Ones? Big At exploits. least one per month, yes. Okay, one per month, big exploits. <laughs> so they write these up in academic papers. And then guess what happens? They've been published. Then the bad guys say, ooh, a new exploit. Well, not everybody's going to be patched by the time this gets out. So I'm going to write the attack vector. And then they start selling them and using them. And so it's really a cat and mouse. It's so difficult to patch the system. It's almost a fool's errand. So next question, uh, right behind Jordan. Yes, yes, sir. Uh, we have uh, a situation here in America right now going on between the government and Apple. And I was wondering how would Israel have handled this uh, if it was a, you know. Um, can you set the stage? Do you know the exact issue? I'll do it quickly. Yes. The but, terrorist that shot in San Bernardino. I think his phone was owned by the county of San Bernardino for which he worked. He had signed a release saying that he didn't own it, the, the, government, the employer owned it. It was found um, by the FBI. They want Apple to give them uh, the ability to use a keypad for them to guess at his password code without violating the 10 time um, miscoded uh, tries when it'll all be wiped out. And Apple doesn't want to do this. So this is the setting up this battle, I won't go into legal issues, but that's the technical issue. They're trying to get his passcode so they can find who he was calling um, in the last days before the attack. Basically, they tried to break into the phone, file all the data, but doing so in a legal way yeah. um, without destroying the data. Well, um, I'm not an official of the Israeli government, but what I can tell you is that in Israel, in such cases, the industry would be much more cooperating with the government, especially in cases such as this. Um, and on a personal note, it's a bit of a wonder because I know of several ways to get into an iPhone without doing any, <laughs> any type of password. So if I know this, <laughs> it's a wonder why can't they. I, I know they can. So it's, I, I'm not sure what happens. This is what you hear in the media, okay? But it, it's, uh, again, about breaking into, uh, into the mobile phones, um, breaking into an iPhone and an Android is about as, uh, they're both uh, very easy. Okay. And I'll give you one, <laughs> one, one, only one businessman's opinion. I think that Apple, and I'm not blaming Apple, I think they're doing this entirely for commercial purposes. That they want to protect opinion. their brand. I think they're, it's, it's exactly that. Yeah. Um, next question was, uh, let's see, uh, well, we'll start over here, young lady, yes. Israel. Oh, okay. Thank you. How prepared or protected is Israel from a cyber attack that potentially is interested in more than money, in destruction of Israel? Okay, so this ties in into what David says, the uh, nation-state attacks, or APTs. So APTs would be advanced persistent threat, usually uh, perpetrated by nation-states. They would have more resources, more patience, more time. They would go into the infrastructure and strike when they're ready, when they think they need to. Um, again, I'm not an official Israeli, uh, you know, I'm not an official of the Israeli government. Um, I know a lot, not much that I can divulge now, but Israel is very well prepared, uh, very well prepared against such attacks. Um, actually, Israel as a country 
and the government, um, headed by uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, have uh, identified cyber um, and this entire thing not just as a great risk to the country, but also as a great opportunity for business. And they helped, you know, they joined forces of the, uh, by the IDF, the Army, um, the, um, the Ministry of Econ Economy, the Ministry of Defense, um, the Chief Scientist Office, um, even the Education Office. And they all joined forces to create a framework for young companies to produce cyber solutions which is why Israel is so good at it. Uh, I think uh, uh, recent, uh, recent research by uh, IVC uh, has counted more than 400 Israeli companies uh, doing different aspects of cyber, just in Israel, 400 companies. Um, so the government understands it. The government pours money into that. They help young companies. But we also are doing a lot of stuff on, on the country level, um, even on the educational front. So. I've seen sort of like cyber courses even for primary school, you know, starting all the way from primary school. And I think that we're probably the first country in the world to have a master's degree in cyber. Um, so we're attacking this on all levels, uh, from the infrastructure, from the education part. And there's a lot of cooperation between the industry and the government. Um, here in the United States, um, the way that I see it, Industry is not always cooperating with the government, mostly because of um, well, the financial side of things. <laughs> it takes a lot of investment to protect, and if you don't have to, you don't do this. So in Israel, there is a lot of cooperation between the industry and the government in order to protect the critical infrastructure. Rabbi asked me to perhaps um, give a little bit of hope for the future, not everything yes. bad and death and destruction. There are ways of fighting the bad guys. And I'm just going to give you one little person's example of how you can help fight the bad guys by doing something. I did something very small. One of my investors is a large Indian sol solutions provider called US Tech Global. They are a billion dollar company, 18,000 employees, etc. They do outsourcing of software development for Bank of America, United Healthcare, Walmart, etc. Uh, they told me they're having trouble recruiting enough engineers, even in India, especially in cyber. And so I said to them, have you thought about Israel? Because I had just been to an event at the JCC in Palo Alto where one of the ministers had come and said, Israel has a problem. We have two underemployed sectors of, economy, of, of population in our society, the Haredi men and Arab women. They do not participate in the workforce for a variety of reasons, some training, some self-selection, and we want to get them jobs. We want to get them good paying jobs so they can be a productive part of the Israeli uh, military, uh, sorry, the economy, partly because they, none of them, those groups serve in the military. Arab women and Haredi men do not serve in the military like, like the secular Israelis or the uh, religious um, uh, well, non, non, the, the Zionist Israelis. <laughs> right. And so this um, group said, we'll be interested in Israel. I put them in touch with the consulate here in San Francisco. We've gone all the way up to Minister Bennett and then to Netanyahu. And they have recently approved a program that will be training 10,000 Haredi men and then 10,000 Arab women. And what this Indian company, with no Zionist roots whatsoever, said is, you know, we looked at Israel and it's pretty expensive. They're not the cheapest place in the world. It's not as cheap as India or Brazil or someplace like that. So we're going to use what is Israel branded best at in the world? Cybersecurity. So they're going to create the SOC of the world, the security operating center of the world. They're going to serve clients in the EMEA area, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. They will manage remotely the security operating centers for companies in London and Paris and Berlin and whoever, wherever, 
And these folks, these Haredi men and Arab women, will be managing and, and using processes and technologies built by some of the companies uh, that, that, that Gilwell knows well and is uh, maybe even running himself. Right. So um, again, just to give some hope, um, yes, I mean, things do look bleak. But there are a lot of excellent companies um, in Israel and outside of Israel. Um, you, you probably won't hear, hear of most of them, but uh, they'll be absorbed by the larger companies. But there's a lot of excellent technologies out there being developed right now. Uh, there's been the RSA event this week. Um, we were there. And I've seen a lot of interesting stuff. Um, so there is goodwill, there is technology, and uh, I think that the industry starts to see the financial benefit of it, which means that we'll use it. Um, so let me ask you a question about that you sure. know well. We just talked about the Internet of Things and things are interconnected, right? And say Israel has to send weapons up. Michelle and I were there with our kids during the war from Gaza and they were shooting every night you know, rockets from Gaza and the Iron Dome would meet the rockets and destroy them in midair. It was an amazing sense of technology. What if somebody was able to hack into one of the Israeli Iron Dome rockets well, and send it on a, on a different course? What, 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 what could we do to solve that problem? Okay, so um, one of the things is that um, First of all, you need to understand, again, that a missile is like any other system. It has computer in it, so therefore it can be hacked. Um, and if it can be, it will be sometime. Uh, the thing is that there are very good technologies out there. Some of them are being um, you know, migrated from the PC side or the smartphone side to industrial, industrial systems. Not a very good solution. But a lot of, uh, by the way, a lot of um, solutions to deal with these type of systems, the uh, military systems, the industrial systems come from Israel. I don't know why, maybe because we understand the problem better than others, or at least saw this before others. Um, so in this case, uh, well, I'd hate to say this, well, uh, specifically the company that uh, I founded, uh, Firmitas, uh, is dealing just with that. So um, we have this type of uh, solution. It's a technological solution, it's a new technology that we just developed. It's, uh, and uh, we have a patent out by now, um, or at least an application, then uh, the idea is very basic. I mean, I don't have to go into the technical details, but I'll tell you the idea. And the idea is, is it's so simple, that's what's so amazing about it, is we make sure that the system behaves as designed. I mean, it sounds very simple, right? I mean, why wouldn't it? The thing is that all of the attacks, not most of them, all of the attacks are done by infiltrating a system and making it do things that it should not supposed to do. That's where the damage comes from. So we thought, you know, all the way down back to basics and we just applied common sense and said, what if we can make a system do exactly what it was designed to do? And then the security comes from within the system. We don't force a, you know, a security model from the outside. If a system does what it should do, it would never crash, burn, or explode, well, unless it was designed to in case of a missile, but um, it would just do what it's supposed to do. And we came out with this technology to allow you know, system engineers to describe how the system should work, and then we enforce it. So in this case, and actually we have a, a first paying customer, and they do exactly that. Um, take military systems, create this working model of what it should do and then enforce it and hopefully um, by the next time uh, people will use Iron Dome, all of them would be protected with our solution. Sir? Yes, 
yes, it is applicable to all type of controllers and generators um, and cars and um, and aircraft avionics, which is, this by the way, another attack. And technical, it would be called a protocol enforcement uh, mechanism. Right. Yeah, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. There's so many good ones. We'll hang around and answer afterwards. I promise. Until yes, I answer all the last one of them. If I ask it quickly, then maybe somebody else will ask another question. Um, I want the, to deal with the counterpoint to Iron Dome. Uh, we're concerned about nuclear proliferation among rogue nations, among terrorist groups. The count, I believe, is in excess of 20,000 nuclear uh, weapons that are um, at large, which is worse than it was, I think, when Bill Clinton left office and said that this is our highest priority. Can Israel, or might you hypothesize, about solutions for using cyber technology to uh, act as weapons against these uh, rogue weapons? Um, yes, again, um, I don't know all of the details. But those that I do know, I, I can't say more. But yes, um, you can say that some sort of defensive weapons, or like they're offensive, but they're used for defensive purposes, are used to neutralize such. Because again, all such bombs will use um, you know, a computer chip somewhere inside. So the, the solution in, in some of the cases is somehow to get to them and infect them with a, what you'd call friendly virus that would render them useless. Got it. So the I know that, so that, I know that some agencies are trying to work this way. Uh, yes, Jordan? Uh, to what extent has Israel's cybersecurity industry fostered increased cooperation with the uh, uh, Gulf cooperation countries? Sorry, with the? With the Gulf countries, the, the Saudis and Emiratis. Cooperation? Cooperation. Well, it's a tricky question. Um, I can say that uh, we have a lot of common interests with the Gulf countries. Um, they know it, we know it. And not much else can be said about it. <laughs> they, obviously, they wouldn't say much. And in the past, when Israel tried to say things, uh, it just uh, rebounded back in a bad way. A couple little add-ons to that. You all remember, of course, the famous scene when Netanyahu spoke to Congress about, against the Iran deal. Behind him, invisible, but in there in spirit, were the king of Saudi Arabia, the emir of Jordan, the head of the Emiratis, they all were feeling the exact same thing. But they, they couldn't appear with Netanyahu, and they are not brave enough or strong enough to come in out and say it in public. But all of them felt exactly the same way. Not just exactly, even more so. Even more so. Um, they're more free than, than the Israelis. Yes. Um, exactly of the, of the same enemies, which be Iran and ISIS. Yes. Um, they're they're going to be affected by them even more than we do. And recently, Israel opened an office in um, Abu Dhabi, I believe, right? Very reopened. quiet. I think it, they reopened. It reopened. It's an economic <laughs> office, supposedly, right? We'll see. It is economic. Economic, yes. scientific cooperation, who knows? But this is a sign. It, it's definitely happening. You should all feel good about that. That's one of the strangest things about uh, international relations, and how Israel and the Sunni countries are really coming together. Yes, um, and you can also take Egypt as an example. Um, I mean, after the so-called Arab Spring, um, right now, the regime in Egypt is or supposedly more anti-Israeli than, uh, than uh, Mubarak was. Um, but 
on the technical, military, and intelligence level, there has been more cooperation since they came up because they understand that we're dealing with the same terrorists, we have common interests, which is much stronger than any official paper signed. Okay, Robert, I'll give us two more questions. Quick, two, two questions. Anybody else? I'm gonna throw up one, yes ma'am. Oh, great question. Is there technology to detect the tunnels that Hamas was building from Gaza underneath Israeli borders? Well, again, this is not a cyber question, and no. I do know about some technologies. Um, I don't know about all of them. Uh, there has been, there are some technologies with limitations, um, and I know that other technologies are being developed right now. I, I, it's, it's a big well, issue. In my opinion, the government. Um, <laughs> okay, I know about this case. Um, it's again, it's security researcher. He, uh, he took control over the right engine of the plane, made the plane take a small turn, um, tweeted on it while on the flight, and an FBI agent waited for him when he landed. <laughs> They're that quick. Um, and obviously when they started interrogating him, he said, look, I'm going to tell you everything because I've been trying to do so for, for months, over months. Nobody could listen to me. Nobody would listen to me. Um, and yes, the, uh, in this case, I, I can give you some specifics. Well, and so stupid to let the, what's wrong with Boeing engineering whoever, let the video Okay, I'll give you the specifics. And everything sounds okay in common sense until we put it together. Um, Obviously, you've all been on planes, so you have this infotainment system where you see all the movies, you can hear the music, this is okay. Um, and there is the operational network of the airplane where the pilot will, you know, commands all the other the engines and the uh, landing gear and, and the flaps or whatever. Um, again, these should be separate networks. It doesn't make any sense to connect them. Now, there is this camera um, at the nose of the plane so when the plane lands, the, uh, the pilot can see the, the runway. It's just standard. It was there. It was there long before anything else, probably before the plane. Um, just kidding. Anything, anyway, um, and then someone said, why? How cool would it be for the passengers who would be able to see the runway when the plane lands? And what easier way to do than just connect the two uh, networks? And voila, you get this. You, you can see the, this uh, nose camera while you're landing, and nobody thought about the security implications that now you open this bridge, and now someone, and they had this stupid answer because it had a very special connector that nobody else knows how to use. By the way, this guy bought, you know, bought uh, stuff for what, 10 bucks on eBay, constructed their own con uh, connector, plugged it into the network, and with, I, I'm not sure it was with an iPad or a laptop, but that's it no very special equipment, managed to get hold control of the, uh, of the engine. So everything makes sense until you connect the stuff together. That's the risk of a connected world. Yes, ma'am. Oh, sir. Sir. So, so it's all good, but um, how do we protect everything when the infrastructure is untrusted? Okay, the computing in general can't be trusted. Right. From operating systems to everything else. It's underneath, so... 
So this is kind of a technical question. We've been talking more about applications, and he's now talking about the, the fundamental infrastructure is, is shaky and, well, and, and wobbly. It also ties into one of the things that, David, you mentioned before, that uh, APTs, I mean, uh, nation states have, been, have infiltrated the infrastructure, have been there for a long time. So you can't trust the existing infrastructure. FSB. <laughs> Okay, so first of all, not every. Wait, wait, That's repeat not, the question. Okay, okay, so there. the question was, if you cannot trust the underlying technology, how you can protect the network or the system? And it's right, I mean, the NSA has been blamed for, and probably justifiably, for uh, implanting um, specific hardware so they control, they can control, I don't know, uh, screens, computers, whatever, not everything, but they can. Um, I can tell you that the Chinese have been doing it even longer for stuff sent, all the, in, all the um, communication equipment sent to the U.S. and other countries. Um, India, for example, uh, banned using in government systems uh, Huawei um, systems. All, you probably all know about Huawei. Uh, and in the industry, everybody knows that... Uh, well, Huawei is sort of the Cisco of China. Well, it's larger right. than Cisco and Juniper Networks and... and combined. Okay. <laughs> combined. They do everything, every communication type of equipment, and they, this, uh, well, the Indian government discovered some, they had this communication switches made by Huawei because they were cheaper, they bought them. Um, serves them right. Um, they, they, they found this rogue communication coming out of these systems and sent back to China. I always joke and say that they're just backing up the country in case it collapsed. Collapse, they can reboot it from China. Um, so anyway, they banned all Huawei equipment because they can't trust it. Um, so yes, uh, there is a problem with the underlying technology. Um, and the answer is yes, there is a different type of technology being developed. And by the way, one of these technologies is, is also ours um, that can be used to work with untrusted equipment and still get trusted systems. So even if you cannot trust specific subsystems, you can still trust the whole system behavior. It's and not simple, but it can be done, and it will be done. Well, it sounds like a bit of Talmud, actually, to go through and find new answers, new ways forward. We are really appreciative of your coming to speak tonight and to talk about what Israel is doing and how we partner together. And I'm really grateful to David for putting this whole thing together. It was fascinating. They'll stay behind some questions. Well, you can give them a big hand every day.